Thank you so much for inviting me. This is a tremendous honor. I've never been to Australia before, and I'm not sure why an Anglican group would invite a Baptist to come, but I'm thrilled to be here, and I hope that uh, the truth that I announce among you will be approved because it's biblical. That would be my goal anyway. When I saw the theme that was suggested, the God who strengthens his people, and contemplated whether I should make a 25-hour trip over here and turn around and go right back at the end, I took note of the way it was articulated. It does not say the strength which God gives his people, and it does not say the people whom God strengthens. It says the God who strengthens his people. Now, I'm alert to things like that. Uh, the mission statement of my church is we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And that's my own personal life mission statement. I exist. John Piper exists to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. So when I look at opportunities to speak, I try to get onto the wavelength of the people who are putting on the program and say, is that what they really want me to do? Do they want me to come and so speak as to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples? And when I see a topic that says the God who strengthens his people, not the people whom God strengthens or the strength which God supplies, which are all true and all biblical, but the God who strengthens his people, I take heart that maybe here's a group that really wants to hear what I have to say. Because I want to talk about God. I don't want to talk mainly about strength. I don't want to talk mainly about the people. I want to talk mainly about God because my own personal experience teaches, and I believe the Bible teaches, that the way to be strengthened in God is to talk about God and not strength, to talk about God and not us. And so I hope the note that you hear struck tonight and for the rest of our four times together will be a note about God. So I'm encouraged to be here, and I thank you, Neil, for all the correspondence you were patiently willing to carry on with me in my delinquency. Even though we have email, I don't always answer as quickly as I should. Now, I want to put this topic in relationship to a question that might be a little bit startling, but I find that posing questions like that help in getting at the heart of what a topic is about the topic, the God who strengthens his people, implies that God is interested in you. It implies that God has a heart for you. It implies that God has a treasury of strength to share with you and that he has some orientation on you. That seems to be implied. And uh, if you would like to take your Bibles and look at a passage with me, I'm going to turn in my Bible now to Isaiah chapter 48 and read three verses and build the rest of my reflections on those verses, as well as some others that say similar things. Now, the question I'm posing is, is God for you or is he for himself? The topic, the God who strengthens his people, seems to imply that God is for you. And no doubt we're far enough along in our Christian walk and our biblical studies to know that that's true. But if you take that truth as a given, as very obvious, well, of course he's for us. It could have a very wrong ring to it. And so I want to get the ring right by posing the question, is God for us or is he really for himself? Or 
How do those two things relate to each other? Now, in Isaiah 48, God is indicting his people for their rebelliousness and their corruption and their hard heartedness. They have necks of steel. But he relents in his judgment and he does so for a particular reason. And that's expressed in verses 9, 10 and 11. And I'll read those for you as you follow along. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver or not with silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. I wonder how you would answer the question on the basis of those three verses. Is God for you or is he for himself? Over and over. For my name's sake. For my own sake. For my own sake. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That seems very clear. God is for God. Unmistakably. God is very God-centered in this text. Uppermost in God's affections is God. And yet, the upshot of that is that he is deferring his anger. He's not cutting them off. And therefore, he is for Israel and he is for his people. And so I want to reflect with you tonight on how that is. What's the relationship between those two things? God's being very God centered and God's being a God for his people. Because I find in American evangelicalism, it was said today without exaggeration that it's 3,000 miles wide, and I've heard one inch deep, not six. And by and large, I would say that's an accurate statement about American evangelicalism. And uh, you should be familiar with the works of David Wells, if you're not. God in the Wasteland, and uh, his book on truth, documenting why that is and what might be done to change it. And I think even... Australian evangelicals could profit from David Wells' books. Well, anyway, the point is that one of the reasons that's so is that the God who strengthens his people would be preached on, typically, I think, at an American evangelical conference, all about strength and all about people, with very little attention given to the godness of God. Very little pausing over the God-centeredness of God. I don't think we'll ever be a God-centered people in evangelicalism until we come to terms with God's God-centeredness. Now, I have an image. I want to begin with an image that I have in my mind, and I have it in my mind because of something that happened back in April. But let me give you the image first, and then as I unfold it, I'll tell you what happened back in April in regard to one of my sons. I have four sons and a new little daughter who's eight months old, whom we adopted in December. I have a 23-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 13-year-old boy, and an eight-month-old girl. So I'm starting all over again at age 50 and loving it. My wife prayed this into reality for 10 years, 13 years. She wanted a girl, no girl, girl, no girl, girl, no girl, girl, no girl. We gave up, and 13 years later, we decided not to give up. And adopted our little girl. So one of these boys, something happened in April, and I'll tell you about it in just a minute. But let me give you the image. The image I have in my mind to get at the God-centeredness of God in relationship to his centeredness in your life is is the image of the solar system. Uh, I asked the question, is God central in my life? Or I said to my son, my 23-year-old in Boston, is the center holding Karsten? 
name's Karsten Luke, he's born in Germany, is the center holding. And I had in my mind that the solar system with the sun at the center and planets. Now you all know that there are differences between the planets and the sun. There's a quantitative and a qualitative difference. The quantitative difference is that the sun is very big. The sun is a thousand times more in mass than Jupiter. And Jupiter is 300 times more than the Earth. 90, get the figure here, I wrote it down. 99.86% of the mass of the solar system is in the sun. So it's appropriate to think of God at the center of our lives on the analogy of the solar system. But the main difference is that it's qualitatively different, right? The sun is a star. And all the planets are not stars. And God is God and we are not God. And the difference between a star and the solar system planets is that the star, the sun, gives energy. It's a flaming ball of energy. 3.9 times 10 to the 33rd power ergs per second from all the fusion of helium. Which way does it go? Hydrogen to helium or... Helium to hydrogen. I don't know. I just write these things down that I read in, in encyclopedias. I don't know anything about physics. But I, I get amazed when I read things like that. That's a long number. 3.9 times 10 to the 33rd power. In other words, the sun is different from the earth. It's giving off this, this energy that diffuses through the solar system as infrared and regular light, and enables on earth you and me to live. So I asked the question to my son, is the center holding? The planets are supposed to and do keep their proper orbit when the sun is at the center. You try to put Jupiter at the center, it's big, but it won't hold. The center won't hold. Let, let's compare the planets to our lives. I just want to get all of all of my son's life on the table and all of your life. Let's just move out. Mercury, let's let Mercury stand for material things. Cars, stereos, computers, CD-ROMs, television. Let Venus stand, of course, for sex and relationships and friendships and so on. Let Mars stand for food and culinary delights. Let Neptune stand for leisure and parties and vacations. Let uh, Jupiter stand for travel and excitement and big things like the Grand Canyon or the Alps or the Himalayas or things like that. Let Saturn stand for career, vocation, advancement, success. Let Uranus stand for good books, arts, advancement uh, in literature and so on in your career. Let Pluto stand for sports and recreation, although in America Pluto would have to be Jupiter in order for it to be sports and recreation and entertainment. I put it way out there because that's my opinion. And let the earth stand for life and health. Okay, that's that's us. And those are all good things. Those, I didn't mention any evil things. But they are planets, and they assume their proper orbit when sun is at the center. And if you take any one of them, even ministry, in the name of Jesus Christ, and put it at the center where God belongs, there will be a brief manifestation of power and spirituality and holding, and it will fail you. The center will not hold. My son it just graduated from Boston College with a master's in literature and he wants to teach and he thinks he wants to get a PhD and he wrote me a long letter in in April expressing uncertainty as to whether to go on in school. He's been accepted at the University of South Carolina, the University of Alabama, Purdue, and uh, had some financial help and he could he could swing it. But this long letter was just uh, a lot of uh, soul exposure about, is this the time? Is this what I want to do for the next five years? 
The Masters hasn't been cracked up for what I thought it would be. I think I might want to take a year off, go to Vancouver and just work and be with some friends. And What do you think? And as I read the letter, I don't care at all. I wrote back to him a long letter. And the gist of it was, I could care less whether you go to school next year. That's like stripes and plaids to me. But what concerned me was I didn't detect in this letter that the center was holding. I didn't see prayer. I didn't see talk about the will of God. I didn't see counsel from godly people. And my heart was aching as I read the letter. My boy's a believer. Uh, I assume. And how do you as a dad respond to a 23-year-old boy who's grown up in the church? He's heard his dad preach for 15 years. And uh, what do you say? You call his faith into question and have him become indignant and say, what do you need me to drop the right evangelical language in every letter? Or, um, so I wrote this long email letter. And uh, called him before I sent it because I wanted to be a personal touch to it rather than just words. And uh, he wasn't there. So I sent it anyway. And and decided to call the day after I knew he would receive it. With a kind of fatherly trembling inside. How would my son respond to a letter that said, my son, my son, is the center holding? Where's prayer? Where's the word? And uh, I called, and my heart was just going like this. I mean, I, I make a lot of hard pastoral calls, but very few compare to a call to your own son, wondering if he'll say, well, Dad, I'm really not interested anymore. And you just fear the worst. That uh, So he answered the phone, and I said, hi, it's, it's Daddy. I just wanted to follow up on the letter. And at the other end, you hear the warmest, most affectionate thank you. Yes, Daddy, the center holds. And yes, we needed your letter. Yes, there's been neglect. Yes, we've drifted. And I thank you. I mean, there's a million dollars. You give me a million dollars, I won't take your million dollars. I'll take that phone call. And so I, this image of the center holding. And the supremacy of God at the center is very precious to me because of the role that it played in that little interchange. But there's an obstacle between people putting God, a supreme God-centered God at the center of their lives, where all those things in ministry, in family, in leisure can hold in their proper place. And the obstacle has come out in our text already. Namely, the obstacle that God is a very self-exalting God. He enhances his own reputation. He loves to be praised and he demands that he be praised. He makes a name for himself at every turn. He is angry when he is ignored or dishonored. He puts himself forward as the wisest and best of beings. He says that there is no treasure above himself he is relentlessly God-exalting, and this is a great obstacle for people putting him at the center of their lives if you present him that way. Very few evangelicals in America do. Hardly anybody does. Not considered to be seeker-sensitive or coming to touch people where they have felt needs to tell them God is a very self-exalting God and you should welcome him into your life. C.S. Lewis Stumbled tremendously over this. Let me just take a little survey here in Australia. Uh, how many of you have ever read anything by C.S. Lewis? Raise your hand. All right. You just just wanted to make sure I wasn't in another planet. <laughs> he, you know, wrote his Surprised by Joy and explained in that little autobiography that he found tremendous difficulty in coming to terms with the God of the Psalms. Because the God of the Psalms is, in his judgment at age 28, 9, vain. He said, the God of the Psalms, who constantly demanded that he be praised and complimented and blessed and honored, sounded to him like an old woman wanting compliments. 
He was vain, demanding of others that they constantly praise him. And so it is an obstacle. If the reason this note is not struck very often is because even evangelicals find it hard to come to terms with a God-centered God, a self-exalting God. Now, I gave you one text, Isaiah 48, 9 to 10. For my own sake, for my own sake, my glory I will not give to another. But let me give you some others. Now, I'll tell you who, who changed my life in this regard. I bet if I did a survey on this one, it would be different. How many of you have ever read anything by the 18th century pastor theologian in America, Jonathan Edwards? Raise your hand. Wonderful. Wonderful. He's my hero, and he taught me more than any other dead teacher outside the Bible. There are some live teachers who have taught me perhaps as much, but no, no dead teachers taught me more than Edwards. And in his book, Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World, he changed me. That book revolutionized my life. Because the end for which God created the world, he said, is the glory of God. And he piles text upon text, hundreds of texts from the Bible to show that not just we should be God-centered, but that God is God-centered. Let me just, just give you a little teeny smattering of this from the text that he gives. For example, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, God created us for his glory. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created... For my glory. So you are created to reflect, enhance, magnify the glory of God. Magnify like a telescope, not a microscope, mind you. That Our language is very susceptible to abuse. When you say magnify, you might mean make something small look big. Which would be blasphemy. If you tried to magnify God in that way. But if you use your heart like a telescope, you don't try to make something small look big. You try to make something unimaginably big look like what it really is instead of twinkle, twinkle, little star. You get the difference? You are created to magnify God like a telescope, not like a microscope. Or why did he elect Israel? Jeremiah 13, 11, I made the whole house of Israel cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise and a glory. He chose them and made them cling to him that they might be his glory. Why did he save them from Egypt in their rebellion? Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8. Our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. He saved them for his sake. Is he for you or is he for himself? Hear the question being posed by the text. He restrains his anger like we saw in Isaiah 48. Let me give you just two more. Why did Jesus come into the world? You ask that question to a typical evangelical in America, they only have one answer. It's a right answer. John 3.16, love the world, therefore he sent his son. Not the only answer of the Bible. For example, Romans 15.7 and 8. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. He came for God's sake. And in order that the Gentiles, the nations, might glorify God for his mercy. For his mercy. Glorify God for his mercy. Is he for us? Mercy. Or is he for himself? Glorify God. So you're already beginning, I hope, to, to, to feel the answer coming from these texts. Is God for us or is he for himself? And how do the two relate to each other? One more. Why is he coming back? A second time in Second Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. It says, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. Jesus is coming back 
to be marveled at. That's why he's coming. He's coming back to be glorified and to be marveled at. Now, this is an obstacle. This is an obstacle to people. They need to hear this. They need to know this. Otherwise, we build a self-centered evangelicalism. People are willing to embrace God as the center, provided God makes them the center. And when that happens, you do not have biblical religion. Millions of American evangelicals, I believe, embrace God because they believe God makes them central. And therefore, they don't embrace the biblical God. They embrace themselves magnified in God. It's an obstacle. Now, we need to both present it and then answer it. All of my life is devoting to answering this question. All of my books are written to help people embrace this God for God's sake. But there's a way to do that biblically, which is very winsome. Very winsome. So I want to try to answer that with you. How do you get over this obstacle of God's being God-centered? The obstacle is that, and it's an obstacle right there in the Bible, it does not sound to people that a God who exalts himself continually, who does everything he does in order to display his glory and to preserve his honor, is a loving God. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, love seeks not its own. And you're telling me, Piper, that God seeks his own glory in everything he does. And I am. So how can he be a God of love if he's so unremittingly self-exalted? That's the challenge of biblical faith. Now, the answer came from C.S. Lewis again. Actually, it came from the Bible through C.S. Lewis to me. Some of us are hard-headed and need to be clobbered with these things in order to get them. Lewis, in his struggle with the vanity of God, said in his book on the Psalms something very remarkable about praise. This was a powerful influence on me back in the late 60s when I was struggling first with these things and trying to come to terms with them. Here's what he wrote about praise and God's demand that we praise him. That is God's God-centeredness and his self-exaltation. In Psalms, he said, quote, the most obvious fact about praise strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers, their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. My whole more general difficulty about praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, indeed what we can't help doing about everything else that we value. I think, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. That was a very life-changing sentence. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. In other words, genuine heartfelt praise is not tacked on dutifully to delight in God. It is the consummation and completion of delight in God. Now, therein lies the solution to our problem. Your mind's wheeling and dealing now. You may have it already. Let me illustrate um, how important praise is to the completion of our enjoyment. I, I've been asking at the dinner table downstairs about the sports here in Australia because 
I wish I wish I knew enough to use a good illustration here. I, w- I wish you were in the World Cup or something, but I don't know enough to use a good illustration. I'll probably make a fool of myself trying to figure out Australian football rules or anything like that. Um, but I did hear that the NBA Finals are televised in Australia, so you know who Michael Jordan is and and uh, your, your Australian hero on the Chicago Bulls as well. So let's just use that for an example, because I know that, NBA and you know the NBA maybe. Um, if if you went to that last game between the Sonics and the Bulls in Chicago, okay, it's three and one. I think. You only you need to re- win four to win the tournament, and uh, it, the Bulls are on their home turf now. And at the arena, suppose you were a Chicago Bulls fan, and you were coming to this arena on the last night when they could win the national championship of the National Basketball Association and beat the Sonics. And as you went in, they were giving out very authoritative little pieces of paper that said, tonight, big big words at the top, enjoy yourself to the full. However, there will be no sounds allowed out of your mouths tonight. No standing, no lifting of the arms. But enjoy yourself, Bulls fans. There would have been a great rebellion. Very simple. Not because these fans dutifully say hooray when Michael Jordan sinks a three-pointer or jumps from the foul line and dunks it. Uh, It's because their enjoyment is not complete until it is expressed. You all know that. If you see something glorious, something beautiful in this world, and you are not allowed to say, wow, I mean, that's just a simple down-to-earth, wow. If you're a poet, you might write a poem. If you're a lover, you might take her by the neck and look at that. But if you're not allowed to say anything, The joy stops. So Lewis's point is that praise, expression toward God, completes the delight that we have in the perfections of God. Now ponder this. If God loves you, what must he give to you? He must give to you what is best. And what is best? God is best. There's no greater beauty No greater power, no greater wisdom, no greater love, no greater goodness, no greater justice, no greater anything good and beautiful in the universe than God himself. If he were to give you all the health, all the wealth, all the prosperity minus God, he would not love you as he could love. He must give us himself for our enjoyment if he is to be a God of love to us fully. But now we have just learned from C.S. Lewis and from our own experience that praise does not get added on dutifully to this delight that we have in the God who's just given himself to us. It is that delight in consummation. Therefore, if God really loves you, he dare not be indifferent to whether your joy in him comes to consummation or not. Therefore, he dare not be indifferent to whether you praise him. Therefore, his being eager for you to praise him is love and the essence of self-exaltation. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act. If you and I try to imitate him in this, we will sin. That's exactly what Satan tempted Adam and Eve to do. You will be like God, independent, able to decide for yourselves what is good and evil. You will be able to put yourself forward as worthy of admiration. And they should have said, we're already in the image of God, thank you. We don't need to be like God the way you say we should be like God. We're not to be like God in this way. God is sui generis. He is in a class by himself. He is God. 
To put it very bluntly, he is stuck with being glorious. Infinitely glorious. And the only way an all-glorious God can love is to offer himself to us for our enjoyment and then seek the consummation of our enjoyment in praise to himself. He must be self-exalting in order to be loving. If he were to cease to exalt himself, he would rob us from that very reality, which brings our own joy to consummation. Now, that to me was the greatest discovery I've ever made. That the God-centeredness of God is the ground of his love and the essence of his love, not in competition with his love. Here's the way I put it now. The implications of this are just stunning. I've written a half a dozen books trying to figure this out, trying to come to terms with this, trying to spell out the implications for our life as evangelicals and family and church and preaching and ministry. But here's the way I put it. If it's true that your joy is an expression and your praise is an expression of God's worth and God's value and God's delightful glory, then God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That's the sentence that captures the essence of my theology. And it's easy to remember because it rhymes. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Now, let me mention two implications of this. It means, number one, that all the divine energy, and that's a lot of energy at the center of our solar system, All the divine energy that goes into upholding and displaying the glory of God also goes into upholding the joy of his people. Because your joy is the highest expression of God's glory and worth in your life. He is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Therefore, if his energy is employed in the upholding of his glory and the upholding of his value, it must also be employed in pursuing your satisfaction in him and your joy in him. I do have the theme of this conference in mind at this point, because Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The God who strengthens his people must be a God who brings joy to his people. And what I'm telling you right now is that the energy and the commitment and the zeal with which God upholds your joy and your strength through joy is the very energy and the very zeal with which he pursues his own glory in this world. That's an amazing The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world, seeking to show himself mighty on behalf of those whose hearts are whole towards him. God's whole energy and zeal is looking all through Melbourne, all through Australia, all through America to exert its power on behalf of people whose hearts are engaged in delighting fully in him. Here's the second implication. The first one was that if God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, then all of his divine energy is going into upholding your satisfaction in him. I could spell this out with the new covenant promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel 36, but we'll leave that. Here's the second implication. This is why I created the term, which I've already been told once in this conference, Uh, is not a good term, and I know that the people I love most in this world don't like this term, namely Christian hedonism. It sounds like the health and wealth and prosperity gospel, which I loathe. But I tell you, when you start seeing things, what I'm seeing right here, and what I'm telling you, you grope for language to help people wake up to it because the church is deaf to these things, by and large. The second implication is You are therefore duty-bound to pursue your happiness in God. 
Sin is being indifferent to what magnifies God. And I have just made a case that God is most magnified when you are most satisfied in him. Therefore, if you are indifferent to your being satisfied in God, you sin. Now, if you believe that, then you have to invent some language to help people get it, to help people not just say, oh, it's another little nice sermon here on Sunday. But this is startlingly, awesomely good news. It's Christian hedonism in John Piper's vocabulary. And you don't have to use that term. If you don't like that term, that's okay. Find your own language to help people get this glorious reality. But I find the need to use language that startles people, that makes them scratch their heads and say, whoa, should we say that? Well, I, most of the things I'm saying right now, people would say, whoa, should you say that? And they're straight biblical. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And therefore, have you ever wondered why the Bible hundreds of times commands you to be happy? Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 37, 4. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. Delight yourself in the Lord. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. Jeremy Taylor once said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. And I thought the first time I read that in C.S. Lewis, it was so clever. I wondered, is that biblical? And I found it in Deuteronomy. I didn't write down. Oh, the text here. You're all ready to write it down. And I didn't bring it with me. Deuteronomy 2860 something, I think. Um, I'll find it and show it to you later. But it says, um, God will hand you over to your enemies because you did not serve the Lord your God with gladness. He threatens terrible things if you will not be happy. So let me draw this to a close now. I'm done. I'm just going to try to sum up tonight. Nehemiah 8.10 The joy of the Lord is your strength. This conference is about the God who strengthens his people. And I've been making a case now under the question, is God for us or for himself? Deeply, deeply, ultimately for himself. He does everything for his own glory. Isaiah 48, 11. My glory I will not give to another. And yet, growing out of that massive commitment to his own glory is, therefore, I defer my anger. Therefore, I send my son. Therefore, I cultivate praise in you as the consummation of your joy in me. And so his self-exaltation is the ground and essence of his love toward us. And he does strengthen his people. He strengthens them by committing himself to work for their joy, because their joy is both their strength and his glory. Now, what we'll do tomorrow morning is pose the question, if that's true vertically, if my joy in God magnifies God and therefore I'm a sinner not to pursue my joy in God. How does that work itself out horizontally in ministry, in love towards people? Can I look somebody in the face and say my main motive in ministry is my happiness? I, I do believe that. And you need to come tomorrow if you think that won't work biblically and find out if that's biblical or not. Let me pray and then there may be time for some questions. Lord, I thank you so much for your giving us your great self. Revealed in scripture, revealed in history, revealed in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Both to vindicate your righteousness and to justify sinners. You get the glory. We get the joy. I praise you for that. I pray that you'd help us understand it and help us live it. In Jesus name.
Amen. Okay, we have time for a number of questions. Uh, perhaps we'll give John just a moment to pause, and uh, I guess the best thing is just to stand and uh, ask your question clearly, and John will do his best to respond. Yeah, up the back, Paul. Thank you. Deuteronomy 28:47. You've all got it now. In the front, Olivia. Thank you. The question is, how does it affect my own quiet times and my own personal relationship with God? It means that I view my Bible meditation every morning and on the plane from America to Australia as a quest for pictures. Evidences and promises of God's beauty and his delightfulness and his promises to me. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.24 says, Paul giving his apostolic mission, and I take it as mine toward my people and toward myself. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers together with you for your joy. A pastor is a worker for joy. It means that joy is hard work. Joy is hard work. Reason? Satan hates it. Your flesh hates it. You think your flesh loves joy? Your flesh loves joy in pornography. Your flesh loves joy in success. Your flesh loves joy in pride. Your flesh loves joy in family. Your flesh loves joy in success, in ministry. Your flesh does not love joy in God. It hates joy in God. That's what it means in Romans 8, 5 to 7, where it says the flesh does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. The flesh cannot please God. The flesh is in diametric rebellion against God's loveliness and beauty as a joy in himself. So my battle, I'm just describing it's a fight. So my quiet times are war. And I am looking for artillery against my flesh and against the devil, the word of God, sword. And I, I'm looking, I'm on the lookout for texts that will enable me to thrust lust through. I mean, you sit on a plane like I did for, I don't know how many hours. I've been on four flights. One of them was 14 hours long. I've, I've sat under four sexy movies. I didn't buy the headphones, didn't pick up the headphones. But you can't help but glance up every now and then, and they say they're just family movies. They're not. Every movie and every TV advertisement has an innuendo to it. And so what do you do? You fight. So I'm reading my Bible. I'm something... God is more glorious. I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about lust maybe on Friday or Saturday. How to fight lust this way. Your your question really is sets the stage for all the rest of my talks. So this, I don't maybe need to keep going on this one because I'm going to living by faith in future grace. The little the second part of the topic is the God who strengthens his people by faith in future grace. And that's what I want to do is I'm going to move from here into how you walk by faith. How does faith relate to pursuing your own pleasure and then close with some really practical applications on how to fight. But the simple answer is I have a very I'm very intentional about my Bible reading in that I'm looking for evidences of God's value to me because the world is constantly presenting alternative values that I should live for money sex, power, prestige, get the latest thing, do the latest thing, because otherwise you won't be happy. And if we don't fight that, if you don't fight fire with fire, happiness with happiness, pleasure with pleasure, you lose or you become a legalist. Right. The question is, put obedience to God and uh, difficult obedience, hard obedience in relationship to Christian Hedonism, which is pursuing pleasure. Anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow Christ is to die to self. The cross is an instrument of execution. 
So when I am confronted with that text, I generally just say to people, just read the rest of the verse. Two. For he who would lose his life will find he who gains his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I know that in laying down my life, in dying, I find it. Acts twenty thirty-five. I have showed you, Paul says to the elders in Miletus, I have shown you how by toiling you are to do good, remembering the words of our Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The very point of that text is to answer your question, I believe. Paul said to the elders, faithful eldering is toiling late night, getting your TV program interrupted, being called in the middle of the night with a suicide problem, having to go to the hospital when you're playing with your kids is hard work. You're constantly being stressed and pressed beyond your limit. And so how does he help them with that? He tells them to remember something that Jesus said. Now, this is exactly the opposite of what many philosophical ethicists would tell you to remember. Because many philosophical ethicists say that the morality of your act diminishes in the degree to which you do it for your own reward. The Bible says exactly the opposite. Jesus says, if you contemplate going to the hospital tonight after the phone call, leaving your kids behind right in the middle of playtime, which we have after supper at night, and you're feeling a little bit grumpy or discouraged or tired or resentful that the providence of God should lead to your having to break off and go to do this ministry. You should remember something. Verse 35 says, remember something. Don't forget it. Don't sweep it under the rug as though this truth would corrupt your morals. Remember, it is more blessed, more joyful in the long run, more deeply satisfying to give than to receive. So my answer is, you do hard obedience because you believe that promise. It is more blessed to go to the hospital and leave your kids behind and walk in on a suffering person who may die before the morning comes. More blessed than if you'd stayed at home and been comfortable and easy with your kids. And the same thing is true of martyrdom. Why? Paul said it one way, the psalmist said it the other way. Paul said, to die is gain. Gain! And the psalmist said in Psalm 63.3, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. I don't need my life in order to be happy. I'm a Christian. Kill me. It's gain. The steadfast love of the Lord, the fellowship with Jesus is vastly superior than anything this world could offer. And so the hardest obedience, namely death, martyrdom, you do for the joy that is set before you exactly the same way Jesus did in Hebrews 12, too. Does God need us? The word need is uh, ambiguous. But given its ordinary connotations, the answer is no. And I base it on Acts 17, 25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. That's as clear as you can get, I think. God doesn't need you. But the question is not over there. <laughs> Why did he make us? I mean, this is one of the most ultimate questions in theology that theologians have struggled with, if God is infinitely happy in the fellowship of the Trinity from all eternity, as I believe he was and is, and therefore regarded as blasphemy to do the Sunday school thing and say to our little children, God was lonely and needed fellowship and therefore he made you. I think that's dead wrong. Why did he make you? And I think the answer is, that you might share in the joy that he has in himself. We'll get that from John 
17, at the end of the Lord's high priestly prayer, where he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, may be with me where I am, to behold my glory, which thou hast given me in thy love for me, before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. I have made known to them thy name, and I will make it known, that the love with which thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let me paraphrase that. I made them, and I redeemed them, so that the infinitely satisfying, joyful, divine love which you, Father, had for me from all eternity now might, by the Holy Spirit, be in them that they might love and enjoy me with the very energy with which you have loved me from all eternity. I mean, aren't you frustrated that you only have a human power to love Jesus right now? You see in him when you do your devotions infinite worth that ought to call forth an energy of devotion and delight that you fall so far short of. And don't you cry out, oh, Holy Spirit, fill me that I might rise up to something corresponding to your value. And you never get there. And that text says. Someday you will love Jesus with the very love with which the father loves the son. I think it's mercy. He he created us out of mercy and does not create out of need. We Jonathan Edwards said it is no sign of the deficiency of a fountain that it is prone to overflow. I'm sorry, I, I didn't get the, the, the gist of the question. The worshiping. Oh, I see. How to avoid the danger of worshiping worship, worshiping experience. That's a very, very profound question in relation to what I'm saying, because sometimes people will fault me for saying, John, don't say pursue happiness, say pursue God. That's almost your question, almost. And it's, it's absolutely right. It's like saying, don't pursue worship, pursue God. The reason I stay with the language of pursuing joy and pursuing happiness and pursuing pleasure and pursuing delight is because to say pursue God is open to as many misunderstandings legalistically as pursuing pleasure is open to misunderstandings emotionalistically. And I find that to put the two together, let us pursue our joy in God is the best way to talk. But I sometimes emphasize the one and I sometimes emphasize the other. I, I think practically the answer to your question in our various parishes and in our preaching is that we preach with a radical God centeredness and we weave a rigorous, thoughtful, theological reflection and exegetical effort into our Sunday morning enterprise. So that the people know they're going to have to use their heads as well as their voices and their stomachs and their feet and their hands and their hearts. Now, I believe in feet and hands and heads and hearts, and I just want to put it all together. I want head and heart. I, I want hands lifted and I want heads engaged. So I, I think if theology and exegesis is the answer. Now, you can worship that, too. You can you can press everything you can. Our flesh and the devil are so against authentic, intimate communion with the living God for who he is in himself, that they will bless Bible reading. Satan will bless exegesis and he'll bless theology and he'll bless charismatic worship. If we just don't get through it to God. To be aware of that is the main uh, solution, I think. And to test yourself over and over. Am I now really just delighting in this nifty contemporary tune? 
or is it mediating something of God to me? That's the best I can do anyway with that one. Thank you so much.